Welcome to our podcast series, Talking with Traders, hosted by expert trader Garth McKenzie in London, from where he's interviewing various guests on the topic of trading. Welcome to season two of the Talking with Traders podcast series with me, Garth McKenzie. In this season, I'll be interviewing various successful traders and investors in my network and asking them pertinent questions about their career in the financial markets. I'll also be discussing how they've dealt with the recent surge in market volatility following the outbreak of the COVID-19 pandemic and how they are viewing the future as we all adjust to a new way of working. We'll also be talking about market themes that are likely to gain traction in a post-COVID-19 world. Joining me on this week's Talking with Traders podcast is Anthony Clark from Small Talk Daily Research. Anthony is a, a researcher and analyst in the market. Um, I, I know him from quite a long way back. He worked at Nedbank at one stage when I was a broker at BOE Stockbrokers, and we encountered each other in the early 2000s. Anthony, welcome to the podcast. I'm really enjoying uh, and looking forward to talking to you today. Garth, it's good to be here. So uh, ask away. My life is an open book. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's get on with it then. Um, Anthony, you, you've got a huge passion for the stock market. I mean, you've gone on, on, on to be an independent analyst now. Um, I follow you very closely on Twitter. Uh, quite a colorful Twitter timeline you have, I must say, and anybody not following you on Twitter should do so. Um, but let's go right back to the very beginning because you've got quite an interesting background story of your life in the UK and how you ultimately ended up in the stock market and where you are today. So can you take us back to the beginning and what got you involved in the markets and got you interested in the first place? Yeah, I'm a great believer that no matter what your background is, no matter what your um, social standing, that in theory, education and hard work and passion can set you free. And uh, if you can hear a, a, a lilt in my voice, I'm actually Welsh by birth. Uh, so my, fa my family are farmers in Wales. They still are. Uh, my parents divorced when I was very young, and we relocated uh, to East Anglia, where I lived in Suffolk. And I went to secondary school uh, in, uh, in East Anglia from about 1979 onwards. Um, most of my family was staying in Wales. And uh, I'll be honest, I come from an extremely humble background. My mother was a cleaner, my father or my stepfather was unemployed for quite a long period of time, and I went to a normal state school, uh, nothing too spectacular in one of the regions. Uh, but I worked very hard, I passed my O-levels and went on to do A-levels, but in that period, uh, I was a child of the Thatcher era. When Margaret Thatcher came to power in 1979, one of the key things she did to the UK economy was privatisation where many state-owned industries like British Telecom, British Gas, British Airways were all privatized and individuals could actually buy shares in those companies. So as a, as a lone 13 and 14 year old with a bit of savings and with some money that uh, a kindly uncle used to give me for Christmas and birthday, I started investing at a very, very young age in the stock market. And there's nothing that gets anybody more excited uh, about the stock market at a young age than making money. And back in the, in the 80s, if you bought any privatization, you were guaranteed to make money because the government was selling these state-owned enterprises off at bargain basement prices. So over the course of between 1984 and 1987, uh, as, a, as a teenager, and I was also working at a local supermarket packing shelves, I built up quite a nice little nest egg of savings. Uh, and then 1987 came, and uh, I got family living in uh, South Africa. My mother's youngest brother moved out uh, in the early 80s to work for Anglo Coal in Whitbank. 
So my grandmother and I, who, were, who I was very close to, came to see um, her son and my uncle. So on my birthday, uh, which is on the 28th of October uh, uh, every year, uh, before that, uh, he took me to have lunch uh, with his then stockbroker uh, in Johannesburg called Max Pollock and Fremantle, an old name. Uh, that day was the infamous black, uh, 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 sorry, was a day of a crash uh, in global stock markets. So there was I, as a, as a, as a youngster, sitting at the viewing platform of the JSE, watching the entire world implode. And you know how the trading floor of JSE used to be. There was, there was raucous uh, shouting and screaming. It was, it was very colorful. And I, I was hooked. And I said to my uncle, I said, this is what I want to do. Now, to take one step back, um, my family, uh, as I said, were fairly working class. And I eventually got a job uh, as a young engineering apprentice at a local firm. So I was spending my time from 17 onwards uh, learning my craft as an electrical engineer and doing part-time studies uh, at the local university. And uh, my nearest local university just happened to be Cambridge. Uh, so my firm paid for me to go part-time and full-time to Cambridge on and off for five years. Uh, as part of that process, um, I actually joined the Cambridge University uh, uh, Share Club. And lo and behold, after a couple of years, I actually uh, won a prize. I was the number two share trader. Uh, in that particular year and won uh, a prize as sponsored by NatWest stockbrokers. This is all now probably in the, in the late 80s. So what I'm trying to paint you, Garth, is a, is a guy who had a passion for the stock market from a very young age, who's making a bit of money and who actually really desired to work in this industry. But his, his social background and his class status meant that it would be very difficult to break into that blue-blooded world, which is what it was in the, in the late 80s. So I thought to myself, what do I need to do to actually change my circumstances to actually become uh, a stockbroker? So I went into the old Yellow Pages. Back in the day, we didn't have the internet. It was all the Yellow Pages. And I called some local stockbrokers saying I needed some advice. And uh, a very kindly chap called David Cochran, uh, who was a senior member of a very old established city stockbroking firm called Lang & Cruikshank Investment Management, which was eventually bought out by Credit Lyonnais, uh, dropped me a letter saying, Anthony, come and see me. So I went to see him in the uh, late 80s, uh, walking in in my battered old suits and uh, with my funny hair and a, and a very strange voice. And he basically told me that I needed to go back to university uh, to study finance and to have a constant ongoing passion and knowledge regarding the markets, which is what I did. So for many years, I uh, followed his advice, even, even though I was an engineer. Uh, I qualified in, uh, in 1990, but I really disliked the job. And my last project, uh, this may surprise many, is the Opel Corsa motor car. I used to make the machines that used to make cars. So my last physical project was designing uh, the machines that actually made the, the bonnet of the Opel Corsa car. Uh, and then I quit my job and I took my savings that I made from trading the stock market and put myself back through varsity in Cambridge again, uh, studying business and finance, specializing in company financial reporting. And I started that course in October 1990. So let me take a break from there and you can ask away and then I'll carry the story again. Well, I love that story about your background and just how you, the, the, you know, the way you've managed to uplift yourself. Um, I can see it now that I, I live in the UK now and I can definitely see that class difference that you referred to where you've got you know, people living in council houses and what have you. And then you've got the elitists who, who obviously get everything on a silver platter, it would appear. So the fact that you've managed to you know, climb out of that situation and, and uplift yourself is really, really inspiring. I also did have to have a chuckle when you mentioned that you made the bonnet of the 
of the Opal Corsa. Now, I had one of those as my first car, which I smashed <laughs> into the back of another car at one point. So, unfortunately, one of your bonnets didn't make it, Anthony. Um, I also really enjoyed in the in the uh, in the discussion we had before this podcast something that you said, and I want to bring this up, is that you used the school library phone to phone your stockbroker when you were at school, and that really resonated with me. I, I was similar to that. Um, I was at school at Parktown Boys, and back in those days there were no cell phones, but like you, I started early and and had a stockbroking account, and uh, I would ask the teacher if I could go to the toilet, and actually I wasn't going to the toilet. I was going to use the school's telephone box to phone the stockbroker and find out where my shares were trading. So that really rung home to me. And it just does refer, reflect that, that passion that you've, um, that you've obviously got for the market. And I've, yeah, it's an absolutely fascinating story that you've told us so far. But you mentioned, Anthony, in, uh, in that discussion that you started young. You said, you, yeah, I think you were 14 years old or so when you started out uh, trading shares and getting involved. What were your first years like? I mean, you've mentioned that you got involved with privatizations and that that was quite an easy ticket to make some money in the early years. But most of us in this game have had ups and downs. Um, you get some real good winners, but you also have a couple of disaster stories along the way. So what, what were your early years like? I mean, were there some difficult moments as well as, as, the, as the, you know, the privatizations that did well for you? Absolutely. I think, as you correctly mentioned, most privatizations were a, a great easy money meal ticket. I remember buying some British Telecom shares in 1984 for, I think, £1.30. And they opened the first day, I think, at £1.65. So as a 14-year-old, not having much money, uh, you suddenly felt rich. And, you know, I was recycle that money into, into the preceding privatizations. Um, I used to have a stockbroking account with a, with a, a still a well-known uh, stockbroker called Charles Stanley & Co., actually listed on the, on the London Stock Exchange, and they, they actually never met me. Uh, so unbeknown to them, this 14-year-old boy was trading, was trading away, uh, which was probably illegal because you have to be, I think, above the age of 18 to have a stockbroking account in the UK. But they never met me, and they never really knew what was going on. Everything was done back in the day by telephone. We didn't have cell phones back then. It was all going to a payphone, putting in your 10p and calling your broker. And again, for those of long memories of how the UK market used to work, it was, what called, it was what was called the account system. It was a wonderful day where you could basically buy the stock on a Monday and you had 10 physical working days to trade the stock without physically having to pay for it. And only when the period closed on the Friday, you have to cancel, cancel the trade and you either paid in your losses or they just paid you the gains. So the account system was an absolute dream for a young guy who was wheeling and dealing in the stock market with a, with a small amount of cash. Um, I used to do some research. I was to buy the Daily Telegraph every day because I couldn't afford to buy the Pink Financial Times. And I used to scan through things that looked interesting to me, penny shares. And I remember distinctly there was a very small property company called the Bristol Channel Ship Repair, which was involved in, uh, in repairing ships in Bristol. And that didn't sound very glamorous, apart from if you did some work, they had a very large property portfolio, which was in the books for next to nothing. So I thought at some point this little company would, uh, would become the target of a takeover to try and get the valuable land at Bristol Docks. And lo and behold, it did. And the share price went up quite nicely. But uh, trading away for three years, there were, there were some bum pots. And I basically lost everything. Um, I got too clever for my own good. You know, when confidence gets the better of you, you think that you're the master of the universe. And at this stage, I think I was 17 or 18. And I remember... Um, calling my broker on the Monday and shorting uh, British Airways shares on the opening of a trade. 
um, after British Airways was privatized again in the Thatcher government. And for me, uh, I, I'd never shorted anything in my life. And I thought, you know what? The stock looks overvalued. Given what's going on uh, in, in, the, in the global economies, I'm going to short the stock. Uh, in the two-week period, uh, I lost the entire money that I'd made in three years. And I think from memory, it was about three and a half thousand pounds, which doesn't sound like a lot of money now, but to, a, to an impressionable late teenager who'd lost his entire savings, uh, it was a huge eye-opener. And uh, from that, I've never shorted anything ever again. I've never done any form of option or futures. I've just stuck to physically buying stocks that I understand and know, and I hang on to them. So I think that's part of a, part of, part of a learning curve of, of, of developing one's career and one's mantra and mindset in the stock market is you have to have some setbacks in order to give you that sort of feeling of, of, uh, of honesty to go forward. And that was one of my, my big sort of uh, downfalls. I lost everything. And I had to then try and make it back with, uh, with, with investments going forward. So that was, I can only say, was, my, was my, the worst part that I've had. Yeah, it's so interesting because most of the people that I've spoken to on this Talking With Traders podcast series have gone through some sort of hardship at some point. It's almost like a rite of passage um, when you get into the market that at some stage you've got to blow up an account or something like that. And certainly that's been the experience of most of the traders that I've interviewed on, on this podcast series. So thanks for sharing that with us. What about your best investment or your best trade ever? Oh, again, um, when I eventually uh, joined the stock market, uh, I'll, I'll just digress for a second. When I, when I qualified from Cambridge with my uh, business and finance uh, degree, specializing in company financial reporting and corporate marketing, um, I may have told you earlier that a, a, an old city gentleman had given me some advice way back in the day as to how to become a, a stockbroker. And I'd followed his advice and had gone back to university and, and done remarkably well. Uh, I passed most of my courses with, uh, with, uh, with distinction. Uh, but this was uh, the early 90s in the UK and there was a recession in the economy and it was quite diff difficult to get a job. So I remember seeing on the university board a, a little article saying, a stockbroker once clerk. And I thought, well, who is this? You know, I was, I was desperate to actually join a, 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 a stockbroker. So I applied. So I put on my, my, my gray suit. I brushed my hair and I called the bus uh, to the local town. And I went into the stockbroker. And lo and behold, the gentleman who had given me the advice many years earlier was the guy looking for a stockbroking clerk to be his assistant. And he said to me, uh, he said, didn't I see you many years ago? Because back then I had an even more pronounced uh, Welsh lilt. I said, yes, sir, you did. He hired me on the spot. I told him exactly what I had done, how I'd followed his advice. And I think he was so impressed, he literally hired me on the spot uh, at a starting salary of 120 pounds a week uh, in, uh, in, I think it was like 1990 something. And I worked for him off and on for 18 months, learning the, the basic trade of, uh, of being a stockbroker, uh, dealing with clients, doing probates, portfolio construction, selecting shares, and he was an old city grandee. Uh, and uh, I will always be grateful to this gentleman who saw something in me and who encouraged me. And to this day, if, I, if anyone ever asked me, who was the gentleman who, who really pushed you in your career? I'd say my uncle, who, who gave me money when I was a kid to trade. And uh, this gentleman called David Cockrum, who really saw something in me and encouraged me. So I think anyone out there, uh, always look for a mentor or somebody who actually gives you encouragement because you never know what the future and fate holds. And I'm a huge believer in fate. Yes. So uh, my best investment, uh, when I eventually got an internal transfer, 
Uh, at that point, uh, I moved to the institutional stockbroking side and I worked for a company called Astaire and Partners, which was a, a city institutional stockbroker based uh, near Mansion House Station in London. So I, I left the provinces and went to work in London in 1994. And I worked for a guy called Desmond Chapman, a, another old city grandee, who was very well connected among small to mid cap companies, particularly industrial companies uh, in the southeast of England. So again, you can see there's a, there's a tenant of my interest in small to mid caps going back for many, many years. I'm going back to probably 20, 30, 40 years. Desmond Chapman back in the day listed a small technology company called Transcends Technologies. Uh, it listed in the London stock market on the, uh, on the AIM market for 30 pence a share. Now, the, the company basically uh, made a, a, a little widget which made power steering in cars much easier and much more affordable. So if you were to license this technology to the international uh, motor manufacturing industry, uh, hopefully it would bring down the costs of actually providing power steering in mass market cars. Let's not forget that back in the early 90s, you know, many options we take for granted right now were actually added extras. So I put, um, uh, from memory, I think I bought 6,000 shares in Transcense at 30 pence for the equivalent of 1,500 pounds, which was a lot of money for me back then. Um, I was actually then earning, I think, at Astern Partners, my first annual salary was £18,000 a year, which if you translate it to rand, is not a bad amount of money in today's, today's uh, salaries, but probably nearly 400000 rand a year mm -hmm. back in 1994. At that point, I was an international salesman uh, specializing in emerging markets with a key focus on the South African market, given I had connections here, and Astern Partners had a very large German client base who used to buy and sell gold shares like a maniac. So my main client base was in Germany. So I bought Transcends Technologies, and it was in my account, and I completely forgot about them. Uh, in March, sorry, in May 1996, I left London to go and work uh, for Anderson Wilson and Partners, which had become Standard Equities, hence my move to this country. Mm. Uh, and then a few years after that, I got a phone call from my uh, ex-stockbroker in London saying, Anthony, uh, you've still got some shares in this Transcends Technologies. Uh, it's sitting in your in your uh, abandoned account. What do you want to do with them? And I said, well, you know, they're probably worth nothing. You know, they were 30 pence when I bought them. They've done nothing. And he said, Anthony, have you seen the share price? I said, no. So I quickly checked to my then Reuters screen. They were trading at 18 pounds a share. Wow. And I was staggered. And in the space of six months, in the height of a tech boom, we went from 18 pounds to 30 pounds a share. So my initial 15,000 so my initial 6,000 shares, which were worth 1,500 pounds, turned into assets worth hundreds of thousands of pounds. And that still is my single biggest investment. So I, I made thousands of percent. So I quickly cashed all of them in uh, and recycled the money into buying uh, other stocks. And that was a cornerstone of, uh, of my portfolio in this country. Wow, what a fascinating story. That's like winning the lotto, finding, like finding a whole lot of money lying in the corner. Incredible. Well, the, the, the other interesting fact is I, I used to hate opening my mail. I still do. Uh, I actually can't stand admin. It, it's, it's a bane of my life. So any posts that I used to get, I used to throw into an old laundry basket. So um, when I got the call from London saying, Anthony, please check the, you know, the notes that we keep sending you, I remember digging into this laundry basket and at the very, very bottom, I opened up a letter and there it was stating that I owned 6,000 shares of Transcends Technologies uh, and they were worth, suddenly worth, you know, 180,000 pounds, which even in today's money is probably nearly 4 million rand. Yep. Yep. That's decent money. Absolutely. Wow. What I, wish I, still, I wish I still had it. <laughs> What's it done since? 
Well, let's just say that I spend it on fast cars and good living. <laughs> yes, and fast cars is something I've seen you like to put on Twitter occasionally. You drive, it seems you've got a thing for BMWs, am I right? I do, yes. What have you got uh, now? Again, many, many years ago, uh, when I was working with Genbell Securities, uh, we used to make quite good, quite good bonuses back in the day. And, you know, as a, as a young single guy, you know, uh, making quite good money. And I remember working with Rob May and Darren Walker and, uh, and others, Lucien Brazen at Gensec. We had a most fantastic time. It was probably the most fun I've ever had working for any business from 2000, sorry, from uh, about 1997 to 2000. I worked uh, in Hyde Park for Genbell Securities, mm. who at that stage was a preeminent investment bank uh, in this country. They were the masters of the universe. And Darren Walker, as the head of trading, was literally a, a walking god. We used to have so much fun. I used to make lots of money. And I used to recycle the money into buying cars and, uh, and traveling for myself. But uh, again, those good days are over. And I've now blown it all, give or take. <laughs> now, you, you mentioned um, earlier that you, you've only ever shorted a stock once, which was British Airways, and that wiped out your account when you were a lot younger. Um, and ever since then, you've never shorted anything, and you don't play futures or options or anything with any leverage. You purely buy physical stock. So... I mean, I think maybe that answers the question to some extent, but I want to ask you, what is your approach to risk? Um, you know, do you, clearly not taking leverage is one aspect of not, not, not taking on too, too big of a risk, but what, how else do you approach risk? It's, it's a very personal thing. Uh, this is a guy that many years ago went on holiday to the States and I ended up in Las Vegas and I hate gambling and I put $1 into a slot machine and that was the only sum that I spent on my trip to Las Vegas. If I was a youngster, my grandfather used to take me to new market races, and I used to have a flat on my horses and occasionally make some money. But I, I'm, I'm very risk-averse. I think um, having lost all my fortune, uh, it was a fortune to me when I was in my late teens, um, you become very conscious of, about losing physical money. And again, it all comes back to your background. As I, as I said at the start of this conversation, you know, when you, when you come from next to nothing and you lose everything, you know, money becomes very uh, important in your life, not as a driving force, but again, you know, when I was, you know, when I didn't have much and I lost it all, it really hits you hard. And I think that's, that changes your mindset and your, and, your, and your mentality going forward to become a lot more cautious regarding your hard-earned money. So the money that I'd made, either earning, uh, stacking shelves in a co-op and, and, trading the, and trading the stock market and, and keeping pocket money and birthday money and Christmas money was suddenly wiped out. And it, it makes you far more guarded in, uh, in your investment stance. And even today, um, I think part of the mantra that I have, uh, even though I'm not a huge uh, uh, numbers guy, I'm, I'm not a CA and I'm certainly not a CFA, uh, I get to know companies extremely well. And I think part of my, uh, my philosophy is kicking the tires. Uh, anyone that knows me knows that I absolutely love going to see companies, kicking the tires and spending a great deal of time speaking with management. In fact, you know, without blowing my own trumpet, I probably speak to management uh, probably more than most other analysts uh, on the sell side. In certain cases, I either see or speak to a company once at least twice a day. And because of that and a, and a near elephantine memory, you build up a, a picture as to how this company is, is actually performing and what are risk permutations about you possibly investing or recommending that stock as an investment to a client. Do I get it right? Yes. Do I get it wrong? Of course I do. No one's infallible. Uh, but hopefully by getting to know a company and its intricacies and, of course, the quality of management, it helps you build a picture, uh, in my mind, of, of a risk profile of, of investing in the companies, not just numbers. 
Um, you've, we've known from the scandals of, of late in this country uh, with, uh, with Tongard Hewlett and with Steiner that numbers can lie. Uh, but by looking at a CEO in the eye, uh, yes, he may be lying to you, but maybe something in the back of your mind says, you know what, that guy is a bit scaly. I remember being taught many years ago, uh, again by my old city uh, gents uh, who gave me my first chance, because Anthony, never trust a man in a shiny suit. And if they buy a corporate jet, sell the company. And those simplistic uh, methods to life still carry me through these days. You know, if a guy is, is, is not giving me the correct answers or being evasive or dodging my call, and if there's inconsistencies from week to week or month to month in a story, it raises my hackles. And because I, I, I write everything down and I memorize most things, you can track these small nuances in changes. And that to me is the biggest method that I use for evaluating risk. Yeah, that's very interesting. And I know from what you said, and obviously from speaking to, to many people in the market, that exactly what you say, you're very well known for going and kicking the tires and really getting stuck into these companies. And I guess playing in that smaller cap space where you do, I guess that's perhaps a bit easier to do that, right, than to go and try and be banging on the doors at some of the very large cap companies, which in fact are covered by so many analysts anyway. Um, so I guess it is easier to get, into, get in the door at some of the smaller cap companies. Am, am I right in assuming that? You're listening to Talking With Traders, a podcast series brought to you by IG, a world-leading online trading and investment provider. If you haven't checked out the IG online trading platform, please do so and visit IG.com. Also, make sure you subscribe to the podcast series on your favorite podcast app or website by clicking on the subscribe button and you'll be notified weekly as we release new episodes. The answer is yes and no. Uh, Let's, re let's remember that most small cap companies, if they, if they list, have never really had uh, 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 an interaction ability with any analysts of the market. So they generally are unsure actually how to, you know, to, to respond and to, and to engage with an analyst. So I think in my case, and, and again, the, the benefit of having a bit of gray in my, in my temple, I'm 53 this year, is I've covered the small cap market in this country pretty on, well, nigh on for nearly 30 years. And if you've been covering the same sector and the same range of companies for such a long period, you build up a track record and a, and a, and a, and a, and a reputation in the marketplace. And I've gotten to know companies extremely well. When I first came to this country in May 1996, the first three stocks that I picked up was Cash Built at three rand fifty-three, Wilson Bailey, I, I forget the price, and Bowler Metcalf at 32 cents. I still cover all three stocks. So 25 years later, I'm still covering those stocks. And you build up that, that wealth of history and corporate connections and, and respectability, which most other analysts generally don't have. So when I move into covering a new stock, what I take in when I, when I knock on the door or, or these days drop somebody a WhatsApp or, a, or an email is I'm bringing the wealth of my, of my history and respectability to, to that company. So if I'm saying, listen, I want to cover your company. This is who I am. This is what I've done. This is my current uh, financial mail rating. This is what I've done for other companies. It actually helps you get in through the door. You know, recently I've picked up coverage of City Lodge Holdings, Raubex, Combined Motor Holdings, and, uh, and PPC. And I'm using that same philosophy of saying, well, this is what I've done in the last 25 years. This is, this is how I can help you actually either improve your profile or get your, your message out there in a much more cohesive fashion, but purely in an independent way, not once, have I ever allowed a company to change my view? Uh, they've misled me at times, but I have very, very firm opinions. As anyone who reads my research 
and follows me on Twitter would know I am very, very opinionated. And that's for one tenant that I have. If you're going to be an analyst, you always have to have a firm opinion. You may be right, you may be wrong, but you have to have an opinion and the client in the end of the day will make their own mind up. Yeah, yeah. That's fascinating. And and I mean, to be an independent in South Africa now is 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 quite something. I mean, you 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 said to me in the lead up to this interview, you know, what is it, or you wanted to talk a little bit about what it's like to be an independent in South Africa and specifically operating in a small cap space because that 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 is not easy at the moment. And what what I also wanted to ask you about specifically is the universe of stocks in South Africa particularly because obviously that's your area of focus and that's your area of expertise but are you not finding that the universe is shrinking for you in terms of the number of companies that are available to cover? Yeah the answer is yes I think if you look in the last 20 or 30 years it's a known fact that the number of stocks listed on the JSE has gone from 700 to about 350 currently with with a massive um, uh, delisting and buyout phase in the last in the last few years. So the answer is yes, uh, but let's not forget that the market movements we have seen in the last few years has made many uh, large cap mid, large cap stocks, mid cap stocks, many mid cap stocks, small stocks. Mm. So my my universe is constantly changing. Uh, this may sound like a like a like a like an odd thing to say, but I, I cover roughly seventy companies, of which probably between thirty and forty I cover very closely. And about 10 or 20 I cover very, very, very closely. So as, as one company falls away, if they've been delisted or if they've gone bust, then something else generally pops into my, into my universe. Um, and let's not forget that there are many companies that, in theory, could relist. Like, for example, this morning, uh, Tiger Brands has sold its value-added meat business, VAMP, uh, to Country Bird Holdings. Now, Country Bird Holdings delisted uh, in 2014. But at some point, they will relist. So I still often cover companies that have delisted. Because in many cases, if they've been bought by a private equity business or uh, they've been delisted by, by the management, perhaps at some point they will relist. And there's always, uh, there's always plays uh, on the go. And, of course, there's unbundlings and breakouts, et cetera, et cetera. So the universe has gotten smaller and there has been a concentration of the work that I do. But I've augmented that by actually covering um, what I would call thematic uh, industries, where I'm one of the few in the country who actually cover, for example, the agriculture and entire um, farm to fork uh, supply chain. So I talk about uh, soft commodities, uh, agricultural equipment, uh, the real drivers behind what actually drives uh, certain companies. And I augment that as well by actually talking about thematics in many of the companies that, I, that I'm covering. So I'm not just talking about education stocks, I'm talking about the trends in education stocks. What could drive that sector uh, going forward? So that's basically expanded my universe. And you know, as one of the few analysts who, who have covered this sector now, as I say, for 25 years, there are very, very few of us left actually covering the small to mid-cap space. Many of the brokers have actually uh, uh, abandoned the sector. And whilst the sector has gotten smaller, many of the institutions still have funds in these stocks. There's now a much smaller pool of analysts able to give them the really detailed quality information that they need to make decisions. And, you know, as one of the last men standing, I, I hope to uh, capitalize on that and, and to keep my reputation and my knowledge of the sector going, which is why I publish like a maniac. Uh, and I'm always running around trying to find out information because the only way I can add value as an independent is to actually get the information which most people wouldn't normally get and to publish it fast. And mm. most brokers have layers of compliance and editing and proofreading, which means that it can take sometimes days or a week, 
you get information out to the marketplace. Well, I can get in, I can get information out instantaneously, and that is inherently valuable. Speed is valuable. We all talk about the instantaneous nature of fast trading. I I am fast information, but fast information with a certain degree of accuracy and uh, information behind it. Mm. Yeah, so look, I've certainly seen that in the way that you work. It's, it's fascinating to see how quickly you can come up with stuff and be on top of things, as you say. Um, do you cover any offshore stocks much? Because obviously South Africa, like we said, it is a shrinking universe. Um, but you, you mentioned that you look at thematics and industries and what have you. Presumably, there, there must be some sort of a guide from offshore that you can also apply to the local companies. So do you, do you follow a lot of overseas companies at all? Or is your focus really specifically just South African businesses only? You ask a fantastic question. This has been playing in my mind for the last two weeks. Um, I came to this country in May 96, and, and, I, and I'm very open. I adore this country. We may be going through lots of political and, uh, and economic problems, and the corruption that we encounter on a daily basis and the load shedding really is soul-destroying. Uh, but I adore this country more than most people knew or know, uh, and I love living in Cape Town. Uh, one of the reasons I moved down here, again, was crime, and I... I, it would be it would be very hard for me to leave uh, this city and the country which uh, has given me a great life for the last 25 years. But saying that, it has narrowed my uh, my universe. You know, if anything were to happen to this country, uh, in my entire information and corporate networking base is aligned to this country, uh, which means that you know, if I were to move back to the UK, which I could easily do, I'm a, I'm a UK citizen with a passport and a national insurance number and uh, you know, family living there. But if I went back there, you know, who, who, who am I? I'm nobody. I'm, I'm, I may be somebody here, albeit a small somebody, but I, in the UK, I'm nobody. And I have no real connection or any or coverage of small caps in the UK. I keep an eye on what's going on there. I read the Investors Chronicle weekly, which is a fantastic UK publication, just to get thematic trends. But I, I don't cover any offshore companies. And I'm actually considering uh, perhaps um, adding some. Uh, perhaps with, a, with an offshore flavor uh, to South African uh, uh, markets just to augment my career because, you know, it's, it's difficult, you know, if, uh, excuse my colorful demeanor, if a shit hits a fan here, um, you know, I have to make a living somehow and, and to pay my bills. Mm. Um, but I will, I will always remember what uh, the PSG founder and chairman, uh, the great Yanni Moton, told me back in February 2001. I had my first ever small cap conference um, when I was at BOE. And it was held at Spear. And uh, the, the, the keynote speaker was Yanni Boton, who, who trekked through from Stellenbosch to present at Spear. And he, he asked the assembled audience uh, at that stage, we were going through some tough times in this country, how many people were thinking of leaving the country? And many, many hands went up. And he stood on his, on his lectern and he, and he said, for all of you that want to leave, the ones of us that stay will have many more opportunities. We just have to find them. And that's a mantra that I still have 20 years later. You know, it may be tough here, but if the people are leaving, there'll always be a demand and interest in, in, in certain types of stocks and certain type of thematics. And if you're the only guard of that information, that information remains inherently valuable for domestic institutions or even offshore funds looking to invest in emerging markets. So I hope to be the last man standing uh, in that sector. Okay. Great outlook, I must say. That is a great outlook. And I've heard that before. You know, people do say that for everyone that leaves, there's just more opportunities for those with a sharp brain that stick around and stay. Now, just moving on again, um, 
obviously we've gone through COVID, we're going through COVID-19 at the moment and it's changed the way we all work. Maybe not for yourself and hasn't changed the way I work much because we're similar in the sense that we work from home and everything, a lot of what we do is, is online. Um, but it's created a whole bunch of problems, but it's also created a whole bunch of opportunities as well. Is there anything or are there any themes that you're seeing uh, that have emerged as a result of COVID-19 that perhaps weren't there before? Well, I think, Garth, as you correctly pointed out, um, you and I both work from home. I've uh, been working from home for my little back office for the last 10 years. And all I have is basically a PC screen and filing cabinets full of information. Uh, I think I miss going out kicking the tires and visiting companies and, uh, and having cups of coffee with CEOs and CFOs and, and gleaning that tidbit of information because Zoom and MS Teams may be all very interesting, but it's the very nuance that you get by looking someone in the eye. But I think it's far more important, which you actually don't get from, a, from an online um, uh, meeting. And online meetings can be sanitized and they can be edited to suit the narrative that the companies want to give you. So in that, in that sense, it actually has hurt, to a certain degree, some of the information that I can normally publish. But saying that, uh, because of the network that I have and the engagements, I've, many, I've always managed to get the information. But in, ter in terms of going forward, I think what, what is becoming increasingly prevalent uh, in COVID-19 was a term that I used in a financial mail report I wrote quite some months ago on what I call the, the rise of cocooning. Uh, it's not my term. I think I may have purloined it from somebody many years ago. But people are now used to doing things in their own home. Um, you know, people perhaps do not want to go out and socialize and, and eat at restaurants and travel because of a potential risk of getting sick. You know, I, I have many CEOs who have got, um, well, in fact, I know three who had COVID-19 and they all, they all thankfully uh, recovered. But, you know, it, 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 it focuses your mortality and you actually don't want to put yourself or your family or your loved ones at any risk. So you tend to do far more. Uh, in your own in your own home or in your direct vicinity, which means that people order in more online shopping, online meetings, et cetera, et cetera. So what I've seen from my side is that the engagements that I've had with corporates is that there's been far more engagement with their customers and clientele online. So if you, if you have a good online offering, then you are you are you are actually leading you are leading the edge compared to people who are, who have let's say come into a party late. And that's obviously led to you know, some companies doing much better than others. And I think it's, it's changed the dynamic going forward where we will now look for companies that have what I would call a holistic approach to servicing the consumer. It's not just having a physical product on a shelf. It'll, it'll be very, very many touch points uh, to get that product out to the consumer, be it you know, a can of baked beans or even a car. Um, and I think that's what's changed my mind going forward in the, in the way that I look at the companies is, you know, if... Heaven forbid there's another pandemic in the next few years. What have the companies learned from this global pandemic that will actually make them nimbler, faster, and stronger? And the other thing that has been absolutely key in this pandemic is the strength and integrity of companies. The companies that came, that entered the pandemic with strong balance sheets, albeit a very conservative, staid nature, which perhaps the market used to disdain uh, you know, a year or two ago, I've actually shown that being conservative and fiscally prudent is the way to do business going forward. And they have absolutely done fantastically well. And I think at some, at some point in time, the market will look at the small to mid cap saying, well, look at Bola Metcalf, look at Santova, look at um, Quantum Foods as an example. They had great balance sheets. They've carried on trading. There was no debt. 
Why are we rating these stocks on P's of twos, threes, and fours? They're actually solid businesses that deserve decent attention and better ratings than companies which have bombed out balance sheets and dodgy management. Yeah, I guess that talks to that old Warren Buffett adage that uh, you only see who's been swimming naked when the tide goes out. And certainly that tide's gone out a lot lately. So we're starting to see which of those companies have been over leveraged and over geared on their balance sheets, as you say. Um, now, Anthony, if we approaching the end of the of the interview now, I mean, I'm loving talking to you. I think we could talk for hours, but um, we've got to keep it to the to the time that is allotted. Um, if you had to give somebody advice now, a, a youngster starting out their career in the market, um, or or just saying that you you know Anthony Clark is 14 years old again, and you can go and talk to him and say what bit of advice would you give to a youngster now wanting to get involved in this business, getting involved in the stock market or being an analyst or a trader or a fund manager for that matter? Are there any little tidbits of advice that you would give a youngster nowadays? Yep, that's a great question. Um, on my Twitter page, uh, I often get direct messages from, from people asking them, asking me, you know, what do we need to do to get into the stock market and what advice would you give me? And I give the standard advice and it, it hasn't changed probably in 30 years. And I use the same advice that, uh, that, that I use to myself. I don't care what your background is. I don't care your, your race, your color, your sexuality. I don't care who you are. If you work hard, if you have passion, drive, and desire, you can go anywhere. And you have to start off by actually doing the bare basics. I tell people, buy the financial mail, buy the business day. Read as much as you can. Try and absorb that information like a sponge because at the end of the day, what we do isn't a job. A job is a nine to five, you earn a salary. If you actually adore what you do, which I do, I think anyone that knows me, I, I, I cannot imagine doing anything else. You know, there are times which are, for me, which is quite tough and I'm not making any money, but every single morning I wake up saying, right, what difference can I make today? Where can I add value? What information can I glean that can actually, you know, give some, give some wisdom? Uh, to an individual or a client and that only comes from having a love and a passion from what you do And so when I was working for stockbroking firms now to interview young people coming to uh, to look for work The first question I would ask was why do you want to do this job? And if the opening line was well, we can make lots of money and we, be we can become rich I have to literally kick them out of a room uh, The opening line should be says we love this job because I, I love finding things out and I love imparting information and if you come from a position of strength where what you do isn't a job, it's actually a, a hobby or a passion, that passion is generally always recognized by a potential employer. And I know that because it's happened to me on numerous occasions. Every single job that I've had uh, in my career, I've been headhunted or recruited or I've been approached because uh, your, your reputation, uh, your standing in the marketplace, the passion that you imbue actually is pervasive. So I would tell any young person, work hard, do your studies, read as much as you can, and try and keep up to date and informed with current events, not just domestically, but globally. And as such, it doesn't matter if you come from a, uh, from a, from a township uh, in, in, uh, in, in, in Johannesburg or from a, from a, from a vaunted uh, mansions of Clifton. If you have great knowledge and great passion, that'll always stand you in great stead. And I often have people say, well, do I need to do a CFA and a CA? The answer is it does help. I don't have any of those. All I have is an inherent interest and, and years of, of, of love for doing this. And I can tell you, 
But if, if, I had to, if I had to interview a guy who was a CFA or a CA uh, who knew bugger all about anything and a, and a, and a young individual who scraped themselves up from their bootstraps but who absolutely loved the market and really wanted to make a difference, I would hire that person in a heartbeat over the more classically trained person in a, in a heartbeat. So I'd say follow your passion, follow your love, and read, read, and read. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. That p- thing about passion—if you, you know, if you love what you do, you never work a day in your life. That's the saying, and I, I certainly can relate to that. I love what I do as well. I find these markets fascinating, and every day waking up early is not a problem to get on and face whatever opportunities the market are, is throwing up. It, it certainly is a passion. Now you talk about read, read, read. Um, I asked you beforehand to compile a couple of books. Um, if if you can, what two or three books would you recommend to somebody listening to this podcast? Uh, again, way back in the day when I was a, when I was a lighty, I was I was absolutely fascinated by business biographies and business autobiographies. You know how people actually you know, rose from nothing to form multi-billion rand or billion-dollar organizations. And uh, I also used to love reading um, uh, business theory books. And I'm not, not particularly clever. Uh, I, I always tell people I'm not that clever. I'm just, an, I'm just a humble ex-engineer uh, who became a salesman who did okay as an analyst. And I, and I mean that with great sincerity. So I, I, I remember vividly some of the key books that, uh, that, that I really uh, found interesting. There was a, a, a UK investor called uh, uh, James Slater. And he wrote a book on peg theory about how to value companies based on uh, uh, price earnings and cash flow. And that was a fantastic book. Another really interesting book that I read was from the legendary Fidelity fund manager called Peter Lynch called um, One Up on Wall Street, which I thought was a truly amazing book about, about how he used to literally go out and do what I do now, which is kicking the tires and visiting companies and meeting management. Um, I've been reading for nearly 40 years uh, a UK magazine which comes out weekly called The Investor's Chronicle which I think is, is one of the best financial magazines that I read in terms of the volume of information they give on a, on a weekly basis and in easily digestible format. You know, the, the local version would be the, would be the financial mail, and I hate to give a plug, but uh, I write for the end of month Investors, Investors Monthly, which is, which is modeled on Investors Chronicle in the UK, and it gives the, you know, the average man in the street or woman in the street or child in the street a very cohesive and, and, and very... Um, straightforward analysis of companies and stock markets and investing. And I, I think they are great um, uh, reads for anybody looking to get into the market. Apart from that, I also read books about how Lord Hansen created Hansen Trust. And also Jimmy Goldsmith started Cavernum Foods uh, and, and, and that type of thing. So my, my view has always been, I'm not one for, for reading these, you know, these detailed theory textbooks. Read the books by people who have actually made it and actually built something. Anybody can write a textbook if they've been to a university and, and, and done a degree in, in, in algorithms and frequency trading, blah, blah, blah. But I love reading books about people who have actually come up from the ground up and actually built something from nothing. That teaches me more than reading some theoretical book on some mathematical formula. Uh, so it, it might be a very simplistic answer, but it's worked for me. Yeah, well, it's absolutely. I mean, I enjoy those same type of books as well. I'm currently listening to um, Red Notice, which is actually one of the books that Cy Jacobs recommended on his podcast. And that's exactly the type of book that you refer to about someone who really got his hands dirty in the in the Russian market and got involved. Um, anyway, I'll report back on that at some later stage. We're approaching the end of the interview time now, Anthony. So I'm um, 
couple of soft things. I know from following you on Twitter, you, you love to bake. You've got a little dog, Jack Russell, called Plas Yapi. <laughs> and it seems that you quite enjoy going to gym. So, and, and you tweet a lot about all of this stuff. It's fascinating to watch, and I thoroughly enjoy following you on Twitter. I feel like I know you quite well just by following you on Twitter. Um, what else do you do to kind of get away from the, the uh, busyness of uh, markets and analyzing companies? What do you do to unwind? Uh, this may sound like a strange thing, but there's, if there's, oh, there's always something on my mind. And I'm a, I, I, there's an English term called pottering around, which, is, which, which means not really doing anything, but just doing something. So I, I, I as an individual, cannot do nothing. So, you know, before, before this interview, I was working on a report on chicken. Before that, I'm writing a report on, on Invicta Holdings. And now this afternoon, uh, I've got gym from one till two. I'll come back and I'll start picking up uh, other, other works. I just can't do nothing. Um, I love baking because I like to know what I'm eating. I don't eat a lot of processed food, so I like to know what I'm eating. And, you know, having come from a family who were, who were not exactly in great health because of our, you know, our very low social standing, I'm adamant, but I don't want to get uh, sick and, uh, and infirm when I'm older. So I gym to look after myself. I love gardening. I love uh, running around and just looking at things. I, and I, and I'm, a comp I'm a compulsive reader. So there's always something on my desk. If I'm looking right now, there's annual reports, there's press cuttings, there's magazines, there's general books. And as you say, uh, about a year and a bit ago, I got my little Jack Russell called Plas Yarpy, who's probably more famous on Twitter than I am. <laughs> and he's a cheeky little bugger. He's actually sitting behind my chair right now, keeping my back warm, listening, listening to our conversation, wondering what the hell is going on. So the, the answer is, it might not, you know, I don't have any, you know, daredevil uh, hobbies. I'm not a skydiver or trail biker or shark diving, you know. I'm a very simplistic, very ordinary person who just actually, you know, carries on with life. And the, the permeating theme of my life, even the weekend, I was, I was reading something. And uh, when I have lunch for myself, I'm, I'm always reading something. And that, that generates ideas. So my entire life, no matter what I do, is what can I, what idea could formulate from something that I do. It may sound crazy, uh, but it generally always works. Um, I'm, I'm looking at something. Uh, I remember many years ago uh, being at being at gym and using the, the TRX cables, which are cables you use to do body weights. And I then discovered the guy who who invented the TRX cables was a young uh, Californian who sold the company for forty million dollars from nothing more than I, from an idea of using a, a, a cable to exercise. So I'm always looking for something that can have an angle to work that I do, because as you correctly said, what we do isn't work. It's a daily form of living. And I, I cannot imagine doing anything else. So if, I, if I'm baking, for example, I'm going to use Sasco flour, because I, I listed Pioneer Foods back in the day. I'm going to buy new laid eggs, because I cover quantum foods. You know, it may sound stupid, but that very act means you are, you are, you are a little bit more connected in the work that you do. And I often look for angles. In, in, some of, in some of the things that I get involved in. You know, you look for trends that could potentially be tomorrow's big moneymaker. Uh, so to relax, what do I do? I potter around. <laughs> that is fantastic. Well, Anthony, it's really been a great joy speaking to you. Um, I've loved every minute of this podcast, and I'm sure the listeners will too. Thanks so much for your time. I, I've really appreciated it today, and all the very best to you. Thanks, Garth. Take care. Thanks for joining us for today's episode of Talking with Traders, brought to you by IG, a world-leading CFD provider. We really are privileged to have such a leader in the field of online trading involved in this series. Please follow us on Facebook and engage with us there. 
and a reminder to make sure you subscribe to the series by clicking the subscribe button on your favorite app. Till next time.